You're listening to the Acts, How the Gospel Changes the World series, preached by Pastor Dan Christians at Maple City Baptist Church in Chatham, Ontario. For more information about Maple City, please visit us online at maplecitybaptistchurch.com. Good evening, everyone. I love how we're celebrating the fact that we say amen instead of amen. Amen. When, when we all recognize that amen is actually the wrong way to say it, it's just the Baptist way, and so... <laughs> it's good. But hey, I'm with you, Pastor. I shout amen every time, so it's good. It's the way it should be, although it's not. Um, <laughs> I, I gotta say, I, today has been a good day in our church. I don't know what it is, but we've had a good spirit all day long. It's been joyful. The spirit's been working, and uh, Pastor's message this morning was right on. And uh, as I was listening to his message, I, I had a couple like st- points where I just stopped. And one time I stopped, and I thought, how wonderful it is that there, this room is filled with people that took time out of their busy schedules to come together and to really just worship God. It's a great thing. I mean, I don't know if you think about it that too often, but every single person is here because they have a heart for God. They love God, uh, and they want to serve Him and please Him, and so we're here to worship God together. And so it was an exciting thing, and I was excited being here and then hearing so much truth proclaimed in one short space. I told Pastor that if I had that much uh, meat, I'd probably space over like three messages. And so, you guys know that to be true. <laughs> and so, um, I appreciate the message this morning. And, and the truth is, Pastor could have preached my text and given the exact same application. And so, the, the Spirit is working in our church and, and guiding. And we, didn't, we don't compare messages beforehand uh, or anything like that. But as I was listening to his message, I was like, man, this is, this is just a better version of what I'm going to give you tonight. <laughs> and so, but I'm going to give it to you tonight because I think the Spirit is inspiring this portion as well. And I believe that he'll work tonight. Um, So the title of my message tonight is Character on Trial, The Convenient versus the Christ-like. And just like the message this morning, we will see a contrast here of the person that I'm saying has convenient character. And this is the lawyer. And I'm going to refrain from using lawyer jokes tonight (laughs) because Stan's here. (laughs) And I love you, Stan. And Tara told me not to. (laughs) But I do have a question. (laughs) Why don't snakes bite lawyers? Professional courtesy. (laughs) 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 That's terrible. Stan, it's not for you, man. (laughs) (laughs) Hey, listen. The fact is, there are snakes in every single profession. Uh, There's never been a perfect anything other than a carpenter, and it's not Dan Smolders. <laughs> and so, <laughs> it's okay, it was Jesus, so you're, you're all right. So we're going to be looking at the character of this man that has convenient character, and we're going to compare him to a godly man, somebody who has Christ-like character, and it's going to be Paul. And although in this situation it's Paul that's going to be on trial, what I want to do tonight is kind of take a look at this text and, and be the judge of both of these men for a moment. And look at their character and look at what they're like. And hopefully by the end of this, we realize what we want to be. And we purpose in our lives to be the person that has the Christ-like character because the fact is it's so much easier to have convenient character. To do whatever is best in that situation. Whatever is pragmatic. And so we'll look at the man who is pragmatic and we'll look at the man who followed Christ no matter what it meant for himself And I think by the end of this, we will agree that we want to be someone like Paul. So let's pray and we'll get into the lesson. Father, we love you. 
Lord, I'm so thankful that we have a God who can worship like we did tonight. A God who, who died on the cross to make us your child. Um, Lord, what an amazing Heavenly Father we serve. And Lord, I pray that as we look at this lesson tonight, as we look at this man, Tertullus, and we look at Paul, and we see men with two very different characters, I pray, God, that you'd give us the, the strength and the boldness and the desire to be the person who, in our lives, demonstrates character like Christ did. Um, Lord, it's so amazing how similar Paul's situation here is as the, the trial that Christ experienced. And Paul reacted like Jesus did. And it's comforting for us, Lord, to know that fallen people can, can grow and, and live like Christ. So God, I pray tonight you would convict us. Be our teacher, and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Turn to Acts chapter 24. And we've been out of the book of Acts for a little while now. We had Mother's Day and another week that I kind of stayed on Mary. We talked about Mary for a few weeks, and I was gone for a few weeks. And so it's been actually all the way back to April since we were in the book of Acts. And so what I want to do to introduce the text tonight is just to explain how we got there. And I know some of you are familiar with this story, so I'll try and go through it quickly. But if you're not familiar with the story, you've got to read Acts chapter 21 to 23 to understand how we got to 24. And so here we have the story of, in 21, Paul arrives in Jerusalem on his, just finishing his third missionary journey. And as he arrives, he's greeted well by the church. The church is glad to see him. James is happy to see him. He meets with the elders and everything's going well until he finds out that there's a segment of the church that believes that he has become anti-law. That he, he, he thinks that Jews and Gentiles alike should forsake the law of Moses, that the law of Moses has nothing to do with with Christianity, and, and, and so they are attacking him, and there's disunity starting within the church. And so Paul, to quench these lies, goes into the temple, and he takes part in a Jewish ceremony, a Jewish sacrifice. And, and for them, I mean, as Christians now, we might say, Paul should have never done that. But we have to understand that that's how Paul had understood worship happened. That's how he grew up. And so for him, he was expressing his worship to God the way he knew how. And there is nothing in the law that said that he had to do that as a remission of sins. For Paul, that was just an expression of his thankfulness to God for the sacrifice that he had already made to him. And so Paul was doing this to bring unity within the church. But while he's in the temple, he is seized by some Jews that know him. See, Paul has been all around the world spreading the gospel. And there's been many Jews all around the world that have been upset by Paul because they see their Jewish brothers and sisters coming to Christ, and in their opinion, that means they're leaving Judaism. Now, Paul never saw it that way. Paul saw his life, and, and, and a Jew that comes to Christ, as a Jew that is completed, that understands that Jesus was the Messiah that was promised all along, but these Jews are very upset with him. And so, they seize him, they drag him out of the temple, and they beat him, and they're about to beat him to death. I mean, they're angry with him, and before they finally kill him, uh, Claudius Lysias, who is the Roman centurion, bursts in and stops them. And so these Roman soldiers come in, and there's all this violence taking place, and they stop them from beating Paul to death, and they, they take Paul, and they take him to the, the castle of Antonio. And they're going to try Paul themselves up there, see what Paul has done. But on the way up the stairs, Paul turns to Claudius Lysias and says, hey, is it okay if I address the crowd? And so Claudius Lysias allows him to do that, and he gives the crowd the gospel. He tells all the Jews that were just trying to kill him how they can know Christ as well. And he, he gives them his personal testimony about how Christ appeared to him and how he was saved gloriously. And, 
the moment that he mentions Gentiles in the equation, that the, he's the savior of the Gentiles as well, the crowd flips out. They lose it once again. And they pick up dust, and they're throwing dust around it. And, and it's just a crazy scene. And so Claudius Lysias, again to protect Paul, takes him into the castle, and eventually he calls the Sanhedrin together to put Paul on trial before them. And so he sits trial before the Sanhedrin, and, and that, this time it doesn't go so well for Paul. See, this time he, he calls the high priest uh, a whited wall and pronounces judgment on him. And, and so as much as, I mean, we understand why Paul did that. The, the high priest had him hit for no reason. At the same time, it seems like Paul recognizes that in this case he had made a mistake. And so Paul apologized for that mistake, but then he brings up the, resur- the, the resurrection of the dead, and that makes the Pharisees that are part of the Sanhedrin upset with the Sadducees that are part of the Sanhedrin, and they start arguing, and another riot takes place, but this time it's between the 70 members of the Sanhedrin. And so Claudius Lysias, again, has nothing accomplished. He still doesn't know what Paul has done. He doesn't know why they hate him so much. And so he's holding them to a further time until Paul's nephew hears about a plot to kill Paul. So Paul's nephew comes, he tells Claudius Lysias, Claudius Lysias understands that this is a real threat, and so he quickly takes Paul, he puts a a whole band, almost an army around him, and takes him out of the city to go see Felix, who is the procurator of Idumea, or, or, or of the Palestinian region. So he's the guy, he's the Roman that would be kind of in authority at this point um, over that section. And so Claudius Lysias says, hey, I'm just a chief captain. I don't want to deal with all of these Jews trying to kill him and, and trying to, and so I'm just going to get rid of him, pass him on to the next guy. And so when we come to our text today, what has just happened is Paul has been sent from Claudius Lysias to Felix, the governor. And Felix, the governor, is going to, to host a trial where Felix is the judge and the elders will be represented by Tertullus, and they are the prosecution, and Paul stands alone as the accused. And that's where we pick up on Acts 24, verse 1. It says, And after five days, Ananias the high priest descended with the elders and with a certain orator named Tertullus, who informed the governor against Paul. The fact that Ananias, who was the high priest, went, shows the weight that the Sanhedrin put on this particular person, on Paul. How, much, how important they thought this trial was. Okay, Ananias usually wouldn't go to something like this. You wouldn't send all the elders. You would just send a couple representatives of the Jews. Now we have the most important person in Judaism is going to be part of this trial. And they did not need to hire a lawyer. Okay, Tertullus, he is a, he's a lawyer. He's not part of the Sanhedrin. He's not one of them. He's a, a professional lawyer that they hired. He would have known Roman law very well. And they didn't need to hire him. They just wanted to make sure they were going to win this thing. And so they hire a professional lawyer. Verse 2, And when he was called forth, forth, Tertullus began to accuse him, saying, Seeing that by thee we enjoy great quietness, and that very worthy deeds are done unto this nation by thy providence, we accept it always and in all places, most noble Felix, with all thankfulness. Notwithstanding that I be not further tedious unto thee, I pray thee that thou wouldest hear us of thy clemency a few words. And as I listen to this, this introduction by Tertullus, it is just shocking how much empty flattery you see in these words. 
you can just picture him starting, uh, seeing that by thee we enjoy great quietness. Now remember, Tertullus, on behalf of all the Jewish leaders, is addressing Felix, the governor. And he says, by thee, we, being the Jewish people, enjoy great quietness. And quietness was like peace and prosperity. Okay, this is a very good time for them. Um, is that true? Can I tell you what, what Tacitus, who is a Roman historian, said about Felix? He said, Felix's cruelty and licentiousness, coupled with his accessibility to bribes, which we'll find, find out about more in a little bit. So he, he, he likes bribes, he's cruel led to a a great increase of crime in Judea. The period of his rule was marked by internal feuds and disturbances, which he put down with severity. And so this is what the Jews experienced when he was governor. They experienced an increase of crime. They experienced an increase of people like the Sakari, who were uh, Jews who were rebelling against the Roman government, and they were just like these revolutionary Jews. And what ended up happening is these Sakari would get together, and they would try and kind of revolt against the Roman government, and they would be slaughtered, I mean, barbarically tortured to death. And, and so when, they, when the Jews thought about this guy, Felix, they were scared of him. They hated him. He was not a good guy. He was one of the worst governors they had ever had. And so he begins kind of with, with all the Jewish leaders standing behind him, saying, with great quietness you rule. You, you've brought such a, a peaceful time. That's, it wasn't true at all. He's lying through his teeth. He goes on, that very worthy deeds are done unto this nation by thy providence. Like, worthy deeds, where is, that's completely made up. He didn't do anything good for the Jews. He was an enemy of the Jews. He caused disturbances, not peace. We accept it always and in all places, most noble Felix, with all thankfulness. You're so good to us. Always, in all places, all the time. You're just such a wonderful government. Most noble Felix, we are so thankful to you. Do you get the picture of how slippery this, this particular lawyer is? Um, it brings to mind another lawyer joke. <laughs> how do you know a lawyer's lying? <laughs> if it's Tertullus, he's moving his mouth. That, that's, you all know that joke. That's not true for Stan, though. <laughs> Got your back. Yeah. All right. He's, he goes on, verse 4, I be not further tedious unto thee. And what he's saying is there, I don't want to take up all of your time. I could go on and on lavishing praise on you because you're so wonderful, but I'm not going to be tedious. I, I'm not going to drag this out. I'd like to, but I know your time is important. And so uh, he says, I pray thee that thou wouldest hear us of thy clemency, of thy, thy fairness and thy mercy. Just, just hear the few words we have to speak to thee. So now he's going to present his case against Paul. For we have found this man a pestilent fellow and a mover of sedition among all the Jews throughout the world and a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. So a threefold accusation here. He's a pestilent fellow. <laughs> it's a funny word. Um, the pestilent fellow, we would think of kind of like a, oh, he's just, just a little pest. But the word means plague. And so when he was saying this, he was, he was, I mean, you couldn't think of much worse of a thing to say about Paul. He's a plague. Like a plague that goes through and destroys nations and a disease. He's a pestilent fellow. Not only that, he's a, a mover of sedition. And a sedition was like an insurrection or uprising. Now, Felix... He is the guy who is known for being 
for murdering people and killing them brutally who rise up against the Roman government. And Tertullus' goal is to make sure that he does that with Paul. And so he brings up this charge that is, he's a mover of sedition. Okay? He is causing insurrection. He is going to make it so that these Christians, this sect of the Nazarenes, rises up against the Roman government. It's causing a huge revolt, a rebellion in your nation. You need to squash this. I mean, he's being pretty smart in the way he's presenting this case. Okay? He's of the sect of the Nazarenes. This is the first time that the word Nazar- sect of Nazarenes, or, or Christians as call, called one of the Nazarenes, um, is used. But it was just speaking about Jesus of Nazareth. And the reason he would say this is because everybody knew Nazareth was like a small hick town and nothing good came from Nazareth. And so he's just, he's he's saying, this is a terrible uprising, he's a terrible person, and the whole thing started in Nazareth. I mean, really, Nazareth. And so he's kind of just poking fun at Paul here. He goes on in verse 6. Who also had gone about to profane the temple whom we took and would have judged according to our law. And so he was there and he was profaning the temple. He was desecrating the temple. Do you remember what Paul was doing in the temple? Actually, he was worshiping God and taking part of a Jewish sacrifice. That's what he was doing. And here it says he was profaning the temple. And that's because of that original accusation against him that he was trying to take Trophimus, who was a Gentile, into the temple. And you weren't allowed to do that. And so, again, he brings this up, even though he knows it's not true. Everybody at this point knows that's not true. But he brings it up again because... The penalty for that was death. And so he is just trying to to throw all the charges he can against Paul and just see what sticks. They're pretty serious charges. Then he says, We took him and would have judged him according to our law, but the chief captain Lysias came upon us and with great violence took him away out of our hands. Do you remember the story? (laughs) This is the opposite of what happened. They took him, and they weren't going to judge him according to any law. They were just going to kill him. And so they were about to kill him with with a great deal of violence, because that's how you kill people. And it was Lysias that came and peacefully guarded him and protected him and took him so that he could be judged according to a law. The opposite thing happened, but that's not how it's presented. And Lysias isn't here to present his own case. And so, again, he's smart in, in kind of changing the facts a little bit to suit what is good for him goes on in verse 8, commanding his accusers to come unto thee by examining of whom thyself mayest take knowledge of all these things whereof we accuse him. So Lysias has sent us to accuse him in front of thee, almost like we don't really understand why this is going on because we had it all taken care of there, but this is all kind of Lysias' fault. And so you should just, just take care of this matter quickly. And it says the Jews also assented saying these things were so. All of these lies. I mean, when you read that, the whole thing is a lie. All of the facts aren't true. Everything he says about uh, Felix is completely untrue. And it says all of these Jewish leaders, the religious... The, I mean, we don't... You've got to get this. These people pr- prided themselves in how righteous they were. Everybody in the nation looked at them as being the epitome of what it meant to be godly. And here these guys are standing behind this lawyer who has just fed a pack of lies to Felix, and they're all saying, Amen. That is absolutely right. We stand behind that. How wicked is this? How much they must hate Paul. Verse 10, Paul gets a chance to defend himself. It says, Then Paul, after that the governor had beckoned unto him to speak, answered, 
For as much I know that thou hast been of many years a judge unto this nation, I do the more cheerfully answer for myself. So Paul has his own introduction, right? But it's a little bit different than Tertullus's was, isn't it? Paul says, I'm glad I get the opportunity to bring my defense in front of you because you have a lot of experience. That's it. He's, he's been the procurator of uh, Palestine for quite a while, and so he can honestly say, I, I'm glad I get to bring my defense, and I know that you have a lot of experience as a judge. And, and that's all he says. I mean, he's completely honest. He's not rude. Okay? He, he doesn't, I mean, if I'm Paul at this point, and somebody has just accused me of all these things that aren't true with the goal of putting me to death, I'm not happy with Tertullus at this point. I am sickened by all these religious leaders that are standing up behind him. And Paul answers completely in control. He answers courteously, and he says things that are completely true. Okay? I know Paul messed up a couple chapters ago with the high priest, but here, man, what a great example for us. He is in control of himself, and he answers courteously. And, and he says things that are true, and he's nice to the, and he's respectful of the position that Felix has but he is going to be honest and Christ-like as he does it. So he gives his defense, verses 11, and we'll get to 16 tonight. He says, But because that thou mayest understand that there are yet but 12 days since I went up to Jerusalem for to worship. So I was only in Jerusalem for 12 days. I mean, all of these things, you would assume that causing an entire riot across the whole world would take more than 12 days. That's, that's all his point is there. Verse 12 And they neither found me in the temple disputing with any man, neither raising up the people, neither in the synagogues nor in the city. Neither can they prove any of the things whereof they now accuse me. And Paul, in complete control, says, Listen, honestly, I wasn't in the temple causing an uprising. I wasn't disputing there. I wasn't going about Jerusalem trying to cause a rebellion against the Roman government. That's not what I was doing. All the things that he just said, and he's he's not being mean to Tertullus, and he's not attacking him. He's just saying what they just said it's not true, and they can't prove it. Okay? Very logical, good defense. He goes on. But this I do confess unto thee, that after the way which they call heresy, so worship I the God of my fathers, believing all things which are written in the law and in the prophets, and have hope toward God, which they themselves also allow, that there shall be a resurrection of the dead, both of the just and of the unjust. And so Paul here says, listen, I didn't do the things they said, but I will confess one thing to you. When he says that I'm a follower of the the sect of the Nazarenes, I'm not going to call myself that, but I am a follower of the way. Now, I, I do confess that the way that they call heresy, I do worship God that way. But I worship the God of my fathers. And I believe everything that is written in their holy books, the prophets and the law. And So what he's doing here is he's identifying himself with Judaism, with Judaism of the past, and saying, but I know that that what they say about me and following Christ, that's true as well. I'm just getting all of that and my reason for that from the Old Testament books. Okay, So he's grounding his beliefs in Scripture, which Christians ought to do, but he is certainly not afraid to say that I'm a Christian. He is not afraid to boldly tell him that, I I confess, I'm a Christian. If you're going to kill me for that, then kill me for that. That's fine. He says, believing all things are written in the law and the prophets, and he says, I have hope toward God. I mean, he's, he's grounding what he does and what he believes and, and how he's going to act in this hope. The, the, the belief that one day the just and the unjust will be resurrected. The belief that this life isn't all there is, that there's something more to live for. 
And so in verse 16, he tells us how he lives in light of those things. And herein do I exercise myself to have always a conscience void of offense toward God and toward men. What, what a great way to summarize how we're supposed to live the Christian life. I believe the Bible. I follow Christ. I have the hope of the resurrection. I believe that someday everybody will be resurrected to either heaven or hell. That's what I believe. And because that's what I believe, this is how I exercise myself. This is how I live. I live to have a conscience that's void of offense toward God and toward men. And both of those things are important. I know after pastor's message this morning, uh, Stan pointed out to him, uh, Luke, in fact, in Luke, when it's talking about Jesus and his growth, it says that he grew in favor before God and men. And so Jesus even grew in this favor. And so Paul, he doesn't say that I'm only trying to follow God and I, have, I don't care at all what men think. And he's not saying that I, well, I, I'm kind of a God follower, but I, I really am trying to please these guys. I really do try and make everybody happy. See, there is a tendency for all of us to be extreme one way or the other. And, and listen, don't get me wrong here. I am not saying that you need to kind of follow God and follow man at the same time. That's not it. Okay, when you have this conscience that's right, that's void of offense before God and man, that is when you are truly following God properly. And so when, when I say you can be extreme with following God, what I mean is there are some people that, that take this conscience, I, I'm conscience void of offense toward God, and what they, what they do is they use that to justify why they're mean to everybody else. Because they're wicked, terrible sinners, and I'm going to just take my Bible and smack them with it. And just, I mean, they're, they're mean and they're caustic and they're not bringing people to Christ and showing the love of Christ, but hey, they know the Ten Commandments. They know why everybody around them is a terrible sinner and going straight to hell. There, there are Christians that live this way. And because they don't love people like Christ did, they're just not effective witnesses. And so it's not just a conscience. I mean, they, they would tell you that they're trying to do everything right. They would tell you that they know the Bible and they're trying to keep the commandments, but we forget that some, one of the commandments is to love people. And so a conscience void of offense toward God, and, and if you forget the man part, then you might have a tendency to start kind of being self-righteous, looking highly on yourself. But at the same time, God is a part of the picture. And so it's not just a conscience void of offense toward man, because it's not like we live our lives just to please everybody else. When it comes to an issue of obedience, we always obey God, right? And so... We don't just please man. We're not men pleasers. Okay? We ought to obey God rather than men, but at the same time, we do what we can to grow in favor before God and man. We want our neighbors to like us. Listen, you don't need to be offensive. The gospel already is. And so when the, the gospel will offend, when you tell people that they're a sinner condemned to hell, I mean, that, that's offensive. But your life ought to be a life of kindness, of love, of honesty and integrity before them. And so this is how Paul lives, and he lives that way because of what he believes. So as we look at this text, what is the application for us? Um, tonight we've got the opportunity to compare and contrast these two men, and I want to look at three points of comparison to see, to determine which one we want to be. The first one is we see that one, Tertullus, 
And, and when I say Tertullus, you've got to understand that he was representing the religious crowd. And so he, it's not just this man on trial here. Really, we're trying the religious leaders of the Jews because this is, what they, this is how they acted. This is what they thought. So we look at these religious leaders. We see that they had convenient character that, and that Paul had Christ-like character. They had convenient character. Now, convenience in itself, okay, having something be convenient is a good thing, right? Um, I don't like going into banks. Love drive throughs When I go to a bank, I find it so much more convenient to go through the drive through on St. Clair rather than trying to go into Queen, because my bank is, is TD. And, and so I will drive past that one bank so that I can go to the bank on St. Clair. Now you probably think, man, you're super lazy. <laughs> um, and I'm thinking, no, I'm just conserving energy. <laughs> it's a waste of energy. But I was going through the, the bank on St. Clair, and then I went up to the drive through window, and it said, like, out of service for tonight or, or whatever. And so I'm like, how could they do this? <laughs> and then I see a, an older lady get out of her car and slowly walk into the bank, and I was like, okay, I guess I can do that too. <laughs> All right. So, but convenience in itself is a bad thing. And it, it, you might think that I'm lazy, but the fact is, you all use dishwashers, you all wash your clothes and washing machines, you all use electricity. All of those things are convenient. Okay? They help our lives. We like convenience. Convenience in itself is not a bad thing. So, when we talk about convenient character, why is that all of a sudden bad? Convenient character is bad because what they were doing was whatever would benefit them at the time with no regard for what God wanted. See, you have a lot of Christians that have what I think is convenient character. When they come to church, they conveniently act like good Christians. They conveniently come to youth group, and at youth group they, you know, they, they smile, they're happy with people, they're, they're what I would call pretty good kids. But then conveniently when, when they're with their friends at high school, or conveniently when you're at work, or conveniently when you're in your house and nobody else sees, you're a different person. The character that we saw at church is not the same character that you are at home. Why? Because it's just not as convenient. It's easier to be mean and to yell at the kids. It's easier to slack off at work. It's easier to just fit in with everybody at school and do whatever they're doing. All those things are easy. They're convenient. And so these men that would get, go to the temple and they would worship and they'd praise God and everybody would look to them because they're so holy, were doing it because at that time it was convenient for them. It was good. But now they get in a situation where it's more convenient to lie and to try and put a guy to death, and they're willing to do that too. Because whatever's convenient, that's what we're going to do. That is, that's the worst kind of character. I would rather deal with somebody that is just wicked. <laughs> Wouldn't you? I mean, at least they're honest about being wicked. Okay? These people, they're just as wicked. They're just pretending at times not to be. And so, as believers, we need to look at our lives. We need to say, is my character convenient? Because do you know what? Paul had Christ-like character, and because Paul had Christ-like character, he suffered a lot more than he would have if he didn't. Okay? There's, there's a movie, Courageous, and I thought it was a, a very good movie, but there's a scene where this man is put in a room for a job interview, and in the job interview the boss or the person that might give him the, the promotion asks him if he will tell a lie for him. Ask him if he'll write something down on a sheet that's different than what he actually should. And, and the guy understands that he's, he's asking him to lie. 
So he goes home and talks with his wife, and he comes back the next day, and he decides the next day that he's going to tell the truth, even if it means he loses the promotion. And so he goes in and he's, he tells his boss, listen, I can't accept this position because I can't lie like that. Okay? I, I love Christ, and so I'm going to have real character. Well, the result of that is that the man is given the promotion, even though he was the youngest guy in the crew, because the boss was a Christian and was looking for somebody that had real character. Okay? Now, that's a wonderful story, isn't it? I mean, you watch that and you're like, oh, that's, I'm so glad that the guy had character and it just paid off for him. That's great. Do you know what happens in real life most of the time? The opposite. You don't get the job. Okay? Most of the time, you suffer when you show real character. Now, I believe that God honors a life that is built on character. I believe ultimately, but there are times in your schools, we're talking about having real character, Christ-like character. There are times in your schools where you'll suffer a little bit because you have real character and at your work and you won't be included in all of the groups. Okay? And, and with your kids, there will be times that it's more difficult. It'd be easier just to, to yell at them and get angry. And it's, There are times that it's a lot more work to have Christ-like character. And Paul suffered more because of it, but it didn't matter. In this situation, he's telling the truth. And he'll say, listen, I didn't do those things. I'm being honest, but I'll confess I am a Christian and I'm proud of it. And so whatever you need to do with me, that's fine. But I'm living my life in a, a way that I can say that I have a conscience as void of offense before God and men, and that, that's it. That's how I'm going to live. I'm going to have real Christian character. And so one had convenient character, the other had Christ-like character. Number two, Tertullus was a child of the devil, Paul a child of God. Okay? So if you think that this whole idea of just, oh, convenient, Christ-like, uh, sometimes it's the same, no big deal. Uh, I mean, you look at other passages of Scripture that, that talk about these Pharisees, these men, child of the devil compared to a child of God. And my point here is that there ought to be a difference. In John chapter 8, verse 44, Jesus is dealing with the, the religious leaders. He says, You are of your father the devil, and the lust of your father you will do. He was a murderer from the beginning, and he abode not in the truth, because there is no truth in him. When he speaks a lie, he speaks of his own, for he is a liar and the father of it. And this is what they were doing. They were lying to commit murder. They were of, the, of their father, the devil. Convenient character? It's kind of a bad deal because you're representing the wrong team. And if you're a Christian and you're acting like the devil, that's a bad thing. I would rather you not be here. Right? I mean, honestly, it's, it's a bad thing for the cause of Christ and a bad thing for the cause of, of this church that represents Christ, and we're trying to do the work of Christ, to have people filled, filling this church that are of terrible, convenient character. Now, listen, I, I understand there's a growth process. I understand we all stumble and fail. I, I'm not saying that you can't come to this church unless you're perfect. That is absolutely wrong because I would be the first one to leave. But what I'm saying is, if you're a person that is just content to never grow in your Christian life, that's a problem because you're representing the wrong guy. On the other hand, we have Paul who reacts so similarly in this situation than, that Jesus did. He was willing to say what was true and he was willing to say what was false. Jesus, he reacted in a courteous, he reacted in a, in a kind way, in a way that was still loving toward his enemies, but at the same time, he was telling the truth. And that is how Paul reacts. And so Paul here acts like 
a child of God. First John chapter 4, verse 4 says, You are of God, little children, and have overcome them, because greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. And we ought to remember that, that we have the Holy Spirit in us. We've overcome. We've, we're, we're already overcomers, so we should act like it. Child of God or child of the devil. So, number one, one had convenient character, the other had Christ-like character. Number two, we see that Tertullus was a child of the devil. Paul was a child of God. Number three, we need to understand that both Tertullus and Paul will ultimately answer to the same judge. See, in this situation, Tertullus goes in there with this entire crowd of religious leaders behind him, and he's an order. I mean, he knows what he's doing in a courtroom, and he gives this beautiful-sounding speech, and it looks like Tertullus is the man. And Paul's here by himself. He's not a lawyer. He's going to do his best to represent the truth, and that's it. And nobody's behind him. Nobody's on his team, or so it seems. But one day, both of those men will die. And one day, both of those men will face the judge. And Tertullus is going to stand before the great white throne judgment. And do you know what he was going to, he's going to say there? He's not going to say all this. You're not going to, to try and use flattery to get God to let you in heaven. That, that, I mean, he is going to be terrified and he will have nothing to say. And the judge will condemn him justly for his sins. That is the end of Tertullus. See, we think this, okay, it's, it's convenient. They're just, I see all these people and they're, they're living their life and they seem like they're getting ahead, being so immoral and wrong in God. What's going on? Listen, consider the end. Because the end of this man stands before a judge and has nothing to say and is condemned to hell for eternity. And the end of Paul, well, someday he will stand before Christ, but he's, gonna, he's not going to stand before the great white throne. Because he has already been passed from death into life. Christ has already died to pay for all of Paul's sins. Paul gets that his salvation is by faith, through grace, and not of himself. There's nothing that he has done to merit this. And so when he stands before Christ, he doesn't stand at the great white throne. He's already been justified. He stands before the judgment seat of Christ. And all Christians will stand there too. And there we will give an account of what we've done. And we will be rewarded for, for what we've done. And some of us will have works that are just burned up because our whole lives we are living conveniently. But I believe Paul here is showing that he's, just, he's not living conveniently. He's living a Christ-like character. And someday he will meet Christ and hear the words, Thou good and faithful servant. That ought to be our goal. And so do not forget in this trek of life, in our journey, that this is just a short time and that it will all come to an end soon. Someday you will stand before Christ. And either, if you know Christ as your Savior, you will stand at the, the judgment seat of Christ. If you don't know Christ as your Savior, you will stand before the great white throne judgment. And all of those convenient decisions that you made, you'll regret. Regret. And the decision that you'll regret more than anything else is the decision not to trust Christ as your Savior. It is easy for us, 2,000 years later, to open up this book and to look at their lives and contrast them and compare and say, I see where Tertullus went wrong, and I see how Paul is such a good Christian. That is so nice for us to be able to sit here and look at, isn't it? How will we conclude with this thought? We will stand before God. We will stand alone. There will be no lawyer. There will be no lies. There will be no hiding. God knows everything that we've ever thought, everything that we've ever said, and from this point on, 
he will continue to know everything that you've thought and said and done. And he knows what your character is really like. He knows if it's convenient. He knows if this is a show. He knows if you come to church because you think it makes you look good in other people's eyes. And he knows if this is real. And so let's just focus on what God thinks of us. And try and have character that represents our Savior all the time. Proverbs chapter 3, verse 3, says, Let not mercy and truth forsake thee. And we might ask this question. God, how do I do this then? How do I live this life of character? Here's some good advice for us. Here's a great starting point. Live a life of character. Don't let mercy and truth forsake thee. Bind them about thy neck. Write them upon the table of thine heart. So be in the word of God all the time. So shalt thou find favor and good understanding in the sight of God and man. Wow, that's pretty cool. Almost like Jesus quoted that, right? Almost like Paul's quoting it. Trust in the Lord with all thine heart and lean not unto thine own understanding. In all thy ways acknowledge him. And I think we could probably say in all your ways, all the time, in all places, always acknowledge him and he will direct thy path. That's what it means to live a life of true Christ-like character. Let's pray.